Welcome to the sermon podcast feed of Liberty Church Collingswood, where we want to live, speak, and serve as the very presence of Jesus in Collingswood and surrounding boroughs, or wherever God has placed you. Find us at libertycollingswood.org. Part of our mission is preaching sermons, so here you go. Keep in mind that these messages are designed to bring the timeless message of Jesus to bear in specific contexts to specific people, the whole eternal word, changing worlds thing. Would you hear good news here? Bon appétit! These are the generations of Noah. Noah was a righteous man, blameless in his generation. Noah walked with God, and Noah had three sons, Shem, Ham, and Jepheth. Now the earth was corrupt, and in God's sight, the earth was filled with violence. And God saw the earth, and behold, it was corrupt, for all the flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. And God said to Noah, I have determined to make an end of all flesh, for the earth is filled with violence through them. Behold, I will destroy them with, uh, with the earth. Make yourself an ark of gopher wood. Make rooms in the ark and cover it inside and out with pitch. This is how you to make it. The length of the ark is 300 cubits. The breadth is 50 cubits and its height is 30 cubits. Make a roof for the ark and finish it to a cubit above and set the door of the ark on its side, in its side. Make it with lower second and third decks. For behold, I will bring a flood of waters upon the earth to destroy all flesh in which is the breath of life under heaven. Everything that is on earth shall die. But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark, you, your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. And of every living thing of all flesh, you shall bring two of every sort into the ark to keep them alive with you. They shall be male and female of the birds according to their kinds, and of the animals according to their kinds, of every creeping thing on the ground according to its kind. Two of every sort shall come into you to keep them alive. Also, take with you every sort of food that is eaten and stored up. It shall serve as food for you and for them. Noah did this, and he did all that God commanded him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, let me go ahead and pray for us. Eternal God, your spirit inspired those who wrote the Bible and enlightens us to hear your word fresh each day. Help us to rely always on your promises in scripture. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. And now that, as I said earlier, that Lent is over and Easter has begun, the season of Easter, what we call Easter Tide, uh, we're starting back up with the series uh, Genesis Then and Now. Uh, you've gone through different sermons in this series that deal with creation, beauty, uh, sexuality, theology of scripture, the Sabbath, and the image of God. Uh, all these are tough areas that we have to examine, especially today in our culture. And we're going to continue with that tough things that we're going to examine. And as we wrestle with these tough questions, I think it's important to remember this. Uh, in Isaiah 55, 8 through 9. Uh, God says to the prophet Isaiah, says, For my thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, declares the Lord. For as high as the heavens than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. And see, what God is actually saying here is, my ways and my thoughts 
are better and higher than yours will ever be. Uh, so for example, uh, I'm a millennial, as people would call my generation. And as we're, since we're close to um, Villanova, I get to have conversations with different millennials and Gen Zs, so the generation after me. And they disagree a lot with the sexual ethics of the Bible. Even people uh, that, would, that go to college campuses um, and when we do this, I think when this part comes in hold, what I said in Isaiah, it's just because I do not like something that God has commanded, it doesn't mean that it's still not, that it's right and ethical. And if I manipulate the Bible into saying something about God that's not true, or create my own version of God, then I'm just creating something that's myself. Right? See, God ends up being made in my image, instead of me being made in God's image. And see, my creation of God is probably something that's not worthy of worship. And see, who God says he is, even in the things I don't like, those are worthy to worship. And second, God is so much wiser and so much smarter than I will ever be. Right? He, he knows when a sparrow falls, no matter where it is, and he knows how many, how many hairs I have on my head. Right? And there are things on this side of heaven that will just remain a mystery to me. Uh, there are things I'm just not capable of understanding. And that's all right. Because we get to rest in the all-knowing and all-powerful God. And I think these verses in Isaiah and what I said previously come in the story of Genesis and especially in the flood. Right? In Genesis 6-9, through 9, we have the event of the flood. Uh, and since I'm a guest preacher, I actually, there's a lot of questions that come up in the flood, but I also get to kick some of these questions down the road for Jim to answer, right? And especially in the sense of when it comes to, did the flood really happen? And was the flood a world event or a local event? Uh, and I'm not going to answer those questions, but again, I'm going to leave it for Jim, mainly because I actually believe that Genesis 7 and 8 answer those questions better as we read the scriptures. Uh, but I will say this. Um, I actually believe that the, the flood was historic and it actually was worldwide. Uh, and there's two reasons for that. Uh, when you read the, the Hebrew, right, in Genesis 7, it's not a poem. Like the Hebrew, uh, the Hebrew authors, they would actually signify if something was not actually historically happening. Like if they were trying to tell an analogy or say something poetic or prophesy something, they would actually signify that that was happening in the scriptures. And what they're, they're signifying in these scriptures is that this is a real historical event that's happened. Uh, and the second thing, too, if you read, uh, it says that <clears throat> all the earth was corrupt, right? So logically, you have to think, if all the world's corrupt, and I only flood part of the world, then that doesn't deal with the issue of all the world being corrupt and creating a new creation. Uh, but I do think there's also deeper questions we have to answer here. And part of that is, how can a good, loving God kill all these people? And I think kind of behind that or underneath that is, how does a good, loving God really send good people to hell? Uh, and as we answer these questions, um, these are good, hard questions that I think we all need to wrestle with. And I will say this too, like giving a 30-minute sermon doesn't... Uh, doesn't always necessarily answer that. So if you have questions, uh, Eric has my email, my number. You're free to uh, 
call or email me. You're also free to email Jim, uh, Eric, and the leadership here, and I'm sure they'll be glad. And see, the passage in Genesis 6 that we just read, it continues this slow revelation of God revealing himself to us in which he will eventually reveal himself fully in Jesus. And I think part of the thing that it reveals to us is it reveals this threefold pattern that continues to happen within the Bible. And this pattern is judgment, hope, and the new creation. And I'm going to try and walk us through that threefold pattern here. And as we begin this passage, right, it begins with the earth was filled with violence. See, we live in a world of violence. See, many of us a few weeks ago, if you didn't watch the, uh, the Oscars, we saw Will Smith slap uh, Chris Rock across the face um, for making fun of his wife, uh, Jada, for her alopecia. Right? Or if you're like me, you're just totally shocked. I didn't watch the Oscars, but it's all over the internet, right? And then we're also probably shocked of the unprovoked unprovoked Russian invasion of Ukraine, right? And not only is this just a war in Europe that has broken out, but it's a war that has ended the longest peacetime ever in European history. And on top of that, we hear all of all these atrocities that are coming in the news from it, right? Uh, execution style shootings of uh, uh, Ukrainian citizens that Russian soldiers are doing. Uh, there's bombings of hospital maternity wards happening. Uh, the Russians, uh, they, they'll guarantee safe passages to Ukrainians, and then they'll just be hiding and waiting for them as they try to pass and kill them. And even here in America, currently, the past few years, we're seeing a rise in this violence. Uh, in The Atlantic, there was an article written by Olga uh, Kazan, and she wrote this article called Why People Are Acting So Weird. And it was on the rise of violence. They're trying to explain why is there violence rising in America? And some of the statistics she showed uh, is hospitals are reporting a great surge in patients attacking nurses. And they're doing it so much that they're actually attaching panic buttons to nurses for when that happens. Uh, the FAA, so the people that police, um, the FAA, the people that police or overwatch airplanes, right, they've uh, reported a 14% increase in unruly passengers. And I'm sure some of us and many of us have seen people uh, because they have to wear a mask, complain. Or the murder rate the past two years have gone up uh, almost 30%. Car thefts, carjackings, uh, assaults, those are also all on the rise. And part of this article, Ms. Kazan interviewed different experts, uh, whether in criminology, psychology, or sociology, and they were trying to figure out why this increase was happening. And it came down to the two things of drinking and social isolation has caused this increase. Now, I think that's part of the reason, but I think overall, the most reason is, <clears throat> but I believe that there is another reason or another truth of why this violence is happening. Right, in verse 12 in our passage in Genesis 6, it says, God saw the earth and behold, it was corrupt for all the flesh had corrupted their way on the earth. Right, see, people are just naturally corrupt. Ever since the fall, or ever since Genesis 3, uh, this corruption is what the Bible calls sin. And see, uh, St. Augustine, the 5th century um, theologian, defines sin in two ways that I think best fit. The first way is, sin is any transgression in deed, word, or desire of the eternal law, 
And the eternal law is the divine order and will of God. Right? So any breaking of God's law. And the second one is, it is inherent in the sinful soul to desire above all things and to claim as due to itself that which is properly due to God only. So the second thing is, uh, we are giving the credit to ourselves where the credit should be given to God. And see, the punishment for this sin, as Romans 6 says, is the wages of sin are death. And it, because we are both body and soul, uh, it's not only a physical death, but it's a spiritual death. And see, this spiritual death is an eternal separation from God that the Bible calls hell. And you might think to yourself right now, you're like, yeah, maybe I broke a few of God command, God's commandments, but overall, I'm a, I'm a good person. So what's the big deal about this? And you might be thinking about the two questions I asked earlier, right? How can God kill all these people if he's loving and good? And see, these are hard questions to answer, but I want to push back on this. And I think I'm going to push back in two things. It's one, how we view ourselves, and two, how we view God. Right? The first way is how we view ourselves is more often than not, we give ourselves the benefit of the doubt. And we actually think we're better than we are, right? <clears throat> I think about times of, you know, maybe my wife has asked me to do something and I don't do it. And I always say, yeah, but my intention was to do it later, right? We're always like, yeah, but my intention was this. Or maybe we make a, we make a comment at someone. It's not a kind comment. And we say, yeah, but it's just a joke, right? We try to, to say that it, or try to do things that, push it under the rug and make it not as bad. But see, we think that overall, I have done more good things than I have done bad things. And because of that, it will outweigh the bad. Therefore, I'm a good person and I deserve good things, right? But the problem with that train of thought is this, no matter how big or how little the sin is that you do, whether it's telling a white lie or murdering someone, you're still a lawbreaker. Right? And that's because God's law is so perfect and so harmonious that if you just break one law, you break all the laws. See, both Jesus and Paul say that all, the law, all of God's laws are summed up in loving God and loving your neighbor. And since I broke God's law, I owe a debt to him. And the second thing is we think we have done enough good in our life that we have earned our way into heaven. See, we naturally have a sense of entitlement and believe in a conditional way of living, right? We think if we do enough good things in our lives, we get, we get into heaven. But see, our debt is so great that we're unable to pay it off. Uh, one of the longest prison sentences in U.S. history uh, was 30,000 years. And if you think about that, right, at best, a human gets to live a little past 100, right? And so let's say if he committed that crime at 20, right? And you, you know, probably a year until he's actually in jail and sentenced and everything, right? So he's at best has 79 years to serve. And that's nothing to the 30,000 years that that person would owe. And that's how it is for us. It's this debt is so great that we're unable to pay it off. And another thing we always want to try and do is we try to make God more likable, right? Our view of God is we try to twist it and manipulate it a little bit. 
especially when it comes to attributes or things that are hard to interpret and understand, like this. Right? And when we feel uncomfortable, or when we feel uncomfortable, um, I want to make God who makes me feel comfortable and is easy to explain to other people. Uh, for instance, a couple years ago, uh, so Matt has been at Liberty Mainline for about 10 months. So our new lead pastor, Matt, has been there for about a year. And so during that time, uh, one of our, our members, one of our friends, uh, her dad passed away. And he ended up taking his own life. And he uh, rarely went to church, had very little evidence of being a Christian. And then a, a couple months later, we celebrated the funeral of my wife's grandfather, right? Uh, so two different funerals around the same time that I participated in. And my wife's grandfather, you know, he was 99 years old when he died. Uh, and as he was passing away, my mother-in-law prayed for him, sang hymns for him. He, uh, you know, was a believer his whole life. And uh, so there's great evidence in his life that he loved the Lord. And I just want to say this side note too. Um, my, just because my friend's dad uh, committed suicide does not mean that I believe that because you commit suicide means you're going to hell, right? I don't believe that. I believe that it's actually Jesus and our belief in Jesus that makes us go, whether we believe in Jesus or not believe in Jesus, what saves us. And see, it was natural for me. I had to fight back the urge in that when I prepared that eulogy for the funeral for my friend's uh, father because I wanted to comfort my friend. I wanted to make it easy, right? It's not comfortable, a comfortable thing when we talk about that. And I'm making an inference here. I'm sure there was times where maybe know, to know his neighbors and friends where he knew that this judgment was coming and it probably wasn't comfortable for him to have this conversation. But see, God's, uh, but hell, God's judgment, and God's justice are real things. Uh, the scriptures and his, the history of the Christian church have always taught that hell is the final destination, destination for those who refuse the call of Christ. And uh, C.S. Lewis talks about this tension of teaching of hell and how it's disturbing to him saying this. There's no doctrine which I would more willingly remove from Christianity than this. If it lay in the power, in my power, but it has the full support of Scripture, and especially of our Lord's own words, it has always been held in Christendom, and it has the support of reason. And see, hell is God's judgment for the person who refuses to believe and confess in the life, death, and resurrection, and the impact that has in our lives. And as we continue to ask the question. How can a good, loving God send good people to hell? And see, we also view this goodness and love of God incorrectly, right? We think that someone loves me or someone is good to me just because they agree with all that I believe. And again, as I said either, first, uh, no person is good. We all fall short. We're more sinful than we ever believed. And since we are sinful and put ourselves above God, we deserve this death. And part of that is since God is a good, loving God, is that the injustices we do against him and against people deserve justice. 
right? Being just is part of God's goodness and his love. And I'm sure there are people uh, who are infamous in history that we can all think of, right? Whether it's Hitler, Mussolini, or even our own times, Vladimir Putin, that we think they would deserve judgment, right? They deserve this justice. We would be upset if we got to heaven and we just see Vladimir Putin just hanging out, chilling, and doing nothing, right? He gets to be, he gets to be here. And see, <clears throat> a God who does not do just things, right things, that's not a good God. That's not a loving God, right? That's just apathetic and indifferent, right? Or if you're a good, loving parent, uh, I have a one-and-a-half-year-old. Uh, so as a good, loving parent, right, if, my, if I saw my child playing with a light socket and I just sat there and did nothing, that's not a, a good thing. No, what do I do? I go over. You know, at first I maybe am a little more gentler, but if she continues to play with it, I do more and more increasing things to do it. Right? And if I didn't do anything, you would consider me negligent, right? <laughs> and see, God's just judgment and justice are part of his love and goodness. And repeatedly throughout the Old Testament and throughout the New Testament, we see this hope that follows God's judgment, right? And because God is faithful in his judgment, then we can believe in his faithfulness and the hope that comes. And this hope comes through one man, right? God's grace and hope for humans in the flood narrative is seen through one man. See, this man is Noah, we read in verse 8 that uh, before this passage, if you remember about 50 days ago at this point, right, when Jim preached on it, that Noah, or God found favor with Noah, right? It just means that he found gr his grace upon him. And see, Noah was blameless and righteous and walked with God. And see, this does not mean that Noah was sinless, but that in God's eyes, he would not face judgment because of God's grace. Because uh, if you read on in the, the Genesis narrative, we see that Noah ends up drunk and naked and embarrassed at one point. But it's still, in God's eyes, he was seen as righteous and blameless. And see, what God does is he establishes his covenant with him. Uh, and what that means is that God is establishing his fellowship with Noah. Verse 18 says this, But I will establish my covenant with you, and you shall come into the ark of your sons, your wife, and your sons' wives with you. But see, the problem is Noah is not able to fulfill his end of the covenant because of his sinful nature and because Noah could not fully take on God's judgment. What Noah does is foreshadows someone who is able to do that, someone who is greater Someone who is more righteous and blameless, not because of God's grace upon him, but because he is holy, blameless, and righteous, and who could fully able God's covenant. And see, we see Noah foreshadow Jesus and all these similarities, right? And there's a lot of them between Noah and Jesus, right? Noah built the ark out of gopher wood. No one knows what gopher wood is, but he built the ark out of wood, right? And Jesus is a carpenter. Both are considered blameless and walked with God. Noah and Jesus preached righteousness to save people. 
Uh, as the flood rains were happening for 40 days and 40 nights, Jesus was in the wilderness for 40 days and 40 nights. And see, as darkness fell over the earth, as it rains during the flood, as Jesus was on the cross and judgment came upon him, it was dark in the middle of the day. At noon, it was pitch black. And Noah was humiliated by his sons as he was found naked and drunk. But see, Jesus was humiliated while he was slapped, mocked, and hung on the cross and spit at. See, Noah was protected from God's judgment on the wooden ark. But see, Jesus took on God's judgment as he hung on the cross. And see, Noah was unable to take on the full wrath and judgment of God. And only Christ was able to do it. Uh, in the garden, if you remember, as Jesus is praying right before the, his death, right, he asked the Father to take the cup away from him. And it's actually a symbol from the Passover. So in the Passover, you would have this cup that sat in the middle of the table as you're having your meal. And this cup represented God's wrath and judgment that went upon the Egyptians as he passed over the houses of the Israelites. And throughout the Old Testament, this cup is always referenced, whether it's in the Psalms or the prophets, of this wrath and judgment to come. But no man was able to drink it but Jesus. And see, Paul puts it this way to the Corinthians. For our sake, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become righteous, the righteousness of God. And see, on the cross, Jesus took on all our past, present, and future sins and took on the punishment we deserved. And from in it, and in our union with Christ, we are considered righteous. As God looks at us, he does not see my corrupted mind, body, and soul, but the perfect, righteous, and obedient Son, as Paul puts it best. For those who are in Christ, therefore, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. And in this, Christ has made us a new creation. Right? Part of the flood narrative that comes up in Genesis 9. Right? After God destroys all the earth, comes new creation. And see, as new creation, God calls us to live as people who are newly created. Uh, Paul puts it best in 2 Corinthians 5, saying this, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, he is a new creation. The old has passed, behold, the new has come. All this is from God, who through Christ reconciled us to himself and gave us the ministry of reconciliation. That is, in Christ God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. But you may think to yourself, yeah, but Brandon, I do dumb stuff and I sin all the time. And I see other people doing dumb stuff and sinning all the time. How can there be a new creation coming? Right? And one of the best things is we're actually living in this new creation right now. We get to participate it, in it. And see, uh, there's actually a word that theologians call it. It's called the already, not yet. And uh, one of my New Testament professors at Westminster, uh, David Briones, describes the already, not yet like this. He says, for now, Christians live in a great theological tension. We're, we already possess every spiritual blessing in Christ, but we do not experience the fullness of these blessings yet. In one sense, we are already adopted, redeemed, sanctified, and saved. And in another, these experiences 
are not yet fully ours. And see what this, the already not yet means, that in Christ, I can experience and participate in God's new creation, right? Christ has already begun this new creation, right? He promises to us that we can participate in, in it, right? We're already saved. We have fellowship with the Father, and we can conquer sin. And there are three things we can do to live as people who are newly created right now, right? The first thing is we rest in Jesus. Uh, the second thing is we do acts of mercy, and the third thing is we proclaim the ultimate source of mercy. Uh, one of my favorite parts in seminary has been to study the New Testament and especially the different characters' names that come up. And I think they have a great importance of how we study these different passages. And especially when we come to the flood narrative, as there is corruption, violence, and utter chaos that's happening all around the world, God finds the one man to have favor upon. And what Noah's name means is rest, right? There's great chaos happening. And he found the guy whose name means to rest. And see, as newly created people, we find our rest in Christ. And I think there's a great example of this uh, between, in Luke 10, between Mary and Martha, right? If we remember those two sisters. So I'm going to read Luke 10. It says, while they were traveling... He entered a village, and a woman named Martha welcomed him into her house. She had a sister named Mary, who also sat at the Lord's feet and was listening to what he said. But Martha was distracted by her many tasks, and she came up and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to serve alone? So tell her to give me a hand. The Lord answered her, Martha, Martha, you are worried and upset about many things, but one thing is necessary. Mary has made the right choice and it will not be taken away from her, right? Mary is running around, worried about all stuff that happens, right? Just like us, we're worried about all these things that are happening in our lives, things that we cannot control. And literally right in front of her, God is standing there and she's ignoring him. While Mary sits and listens at his feet. And see, this happens when we worry about all that's happening in the world. We run around and eventually it leads us to being angry towards others because they're not helping us. We end up missing out, resting, and being in the presence of Jesus. See, instead we should be resting at his feet. Jesus himself promises even that those who are weary and heavy laden can find their rest in him. And see, we will not be able to fully experience this rest until the final resurrection and we're all glorified but we do get to experience it right now in glimpses, right? It's going to be much greater than what we experience. And so for the next two things I t that I said that we get to experience, right, or do, right, acts of mercy and also proclaiming the ultimate mercy, uh, it, it made me think of this parable that I've been reflecting on for the past couple of years. And it's the, the parable of the unmerciful servant in Matthew 18, right? I'm not going to read it, but I am going to kind of summarize it, right? When it comes, right, we get this servant who owes a great debt to this king. And see, what the king ends up doing is forgiving the servant of all his debt. But see, the, what the servant then does is he has a friend who owes him money and owes him a debt. And what he does is he forces that person to owe it to him, but that person can't. And so he puts and throws that person in jail. 
And eventually the king finds out and punishes that servant for doing that to his friend because he had given him a great, uh, or had paid his debt off. And see, as Christians, uh, Jesus has given us the ultimate mercy and has paid all our debts, taken away all our sins, and on the justice that we deserved on the cross, he has taken away. And as people who have received God's mercy, it means we should do acts of mercy and proclaim this. And so when it comes to acts of mercy, it made me think of the Israelites that were exiled to Babylon. Uh, part of the reason that they were exiled, right? They're, they're making idols about God. They're worshiping other gods. But also part of it too was that they were unmerciful to their, to their neighbors. And if you read uh, Amos 4, you find out that the Israelites at the time that were being unmerciful to their neighbors, uh, they're doing these injustices because they're oppressing the, their poor neighbors and their needy neighbors, right? They themselves, they're living these self-indulgent lives while taking advantage of the poor around them. Uh, and if you look at the current trends, right, of billionaires in our, in our country, right, it's the cool thing now if you're a billionaire is to build your own space company and fly yourself to space or pay someone else to fly you to space, right? We, we think about this with Elon Musk and Jeff Bezos who are sending themselves into space, but at the same time, barely paying their workers and mistreating them. And if you do a little, so I used to be a middle school math teacher. If you do a little bit of math, right, with this, uh, if you were to pay your workers, right, right now there's a huge push for $15 an hour to be minimum wage, right? And if you do a little bit of math, so if you make $15 an hour, you work 40 hours a week, and you work 52 weeks a year, so you don't miss any time, you would earn $31,200 a year. So if both my wife and I made $15 an hour, and uh, our total income would be $62,400 a year. But see, according to uh, MIT, they have this living wage calculator of how much you need to make to be an average person, right? To make a living wage where you're, you know, you're not making tons of money where you can buy a vacation home or anything, but you're also, you don't have to depend on, you know, food subsidies or anything like that. Uh, the living wage for a family of three to live in New Jersey is $75,000 a year. And I'm not here advocating some Marxist-style country we need to have, but I think there's too many of us in our culture and in our churches that think poor people need to pull them out, themselves up by their bootstraps, right? Uh, there's a reason why the work ethic in America is described as a Protestant work ethic. And it's because we have this belief that if you're not making enough money or if you're poor, you're not working hard enough. You just need to work harder, right? And, but instead, as people of mercy, our thought should be, how can I use my gifts and talents God has given me to look out for others' interests over my own? And see, part of it may be that uh, if you're a business owner or if you're in a position of leadership at your work, maybe you should just pay your employees more. <laughs> maybe you should give them more money that's way above minimum wage. Or maybe, and, and I understand, maybe it will hurt your profit margins. And that's okay because it's right. Or uh, 
in our old church back in Ohio, there was a man who owned a body shop or an auto body shop uh, who was part of our church. And he would take students from the inner city and he would have them come and learn. And eventually they would be licensed auto mechanics by the time they graduated high school. And on top of that, he would connect them with an adult uh, at the church to help disciple them as they were part of this program. Right? Maybe there's some talent you have that you know that you can help train people in. Uh, one of the most impactful things that I had when I was a school teacher, uh, we had a, our, our assistant superintendent, um, he came from a poor family in uh, West Virginia, right, in Appalachia. You know, he didn't have running water, didn't have all this stuff. You know what the biggest obstacle for him was to go to college? Is he didn't realize he had to fill out an application, Right? How simple is that? He didn't realize that what he had to do to be able to get accepted into college because no one in his family knew that he had what he had to do. Or maybe uh, you can be my in-laws who um, my wife and her oldest brother are biological kids. But on top of that, they have adopted uh, five kids. And then they also, too, with that, there's two or three kids that were friends, that were pretty much like foster kids, I would describe them best as. And then there, there's also different immigrant families at different times that have lived in their household, right? And it makes us think of this question, am I making my house a refuge for people who need it, right? As people who have received this ultimate, ultimate mercy, we do acts of mercy for our neighbors. And the second thing is we proclaim this ultimate source of mercy. Right? We point people to where the only true mercy is. And that's in the life, death, and resurrection of our Lord Jesus. See, we actively disciple our families and others so they themselves become faithful Christians. We must remember, though, that um, it's ultimately God who calls and saves them, not us. So we just get to be the people who tell and point them. Right? We're just hungry homeless people that are helping point other people to the bread of life. And on top of that too, there's no sinner who's too far away from the mercy of God's reach. And I'm sure many people would not like to hear this, but that also includes someone like Vladimir Putin, right? Of all the atrocities that he's doing, that's how big and great the cross and mercy of God is. That and I'm not trying to say that Vladimir Putin won't face some type of punishment or judgment when he, if he were to accept Jesus, that, but that's probably true that he would in some sense. And as I end this, I want to leave us with a quote from uh, this 19th century Scottish preacher uh, named uh, Horatius Bonner. And he wrote a short book that's, uh, that would probably take you about an hour or two to read. It's definitely worth it to read. Uh, it's called The Words to Winners of Souls. And he says this. He says, He that saved our souls has taught us to weep over the unsaved. Lord, let, us, let that mind be in us that it was in thee. Give us thy tears to weep. For Lord, our hearts are hard to our fellows. We can see thousands perish around us and our sleep never be disturbed. No vision of their awful doom ever searing us. No cry from their lost souls ever turning our peace into bitterness. 
And I want us to leave with this question, and a question that we should ask ourselves, and as we sit at Jesus' feet, like Mary and Martha, it says, do I care about the people around me who are perishing, that I should share the good news of Jesus with them? And I say this in the name of the Father, and the Son, and the Holy Spirit. Amen. Hey, could that have been the best sermon ever? Eh, the odds are strongly not in its favor. Still, thanks for listening, and be sure to rate, review, and subscribe. You can also check out our version of a preaching after-party, the post-Sunday blues, a preaching post-mortem, on the same podcast feed, where you can go backstage with the sermon. Live, speak, and serve at you later.